Welcome to 97 Floor Radio. You're listening to an episode in the Mastermind Interview Series. Welcome to the Mastermind Interview Series. Let me tell you a little bit about it. We kicked off our first ever Mastermind in January 2018 with none other than best-selling author Seth Godin. And we're continuing the conversation right here with a series of interviews with some incredible thought leaders and visionaries. So if you want to learn more from the people running some of the biggest brands around, stick around and be sure to subscribe. We'll drop a new episode in the series every single week. In this episode, we're talking to Joe Staples, Chief Marketing Officer at Motivocity, about what it takes to find success as a leader in business. Joe expands upon the importance of self-reflection, detailing how understanding one's own talents and then building a team to cover the weaknesses is essential. Together, we dive into the worlds of management and marketing and uncover the simple secrets to success. Let's jump in. Joe, thank you for joining the series. I'm really excited to talk to you. Likewise. Yeah. Now, I want to talk about the company you work, you're the CMO for now, Motivocity. Yep. Did I get that right? You did. Just well super done. fluid. Yeah. And before, before that, though, you have been a CMO for a couple of major companies. So I want to take it back to your start just in the business world and like that career path that led you to maybe we can build up to work front. And then from there, what took you to Motivocity? Sure. Uh, you know, and I think for, for most marketers, uh, if becoming a CMO is their ultimate goal, they look at how do I get there? What's, what's the path that I can take? For me, I came up through product management and product marketing. So cut my teeth on Novell back in the day when it was uh, a high-flying uh, uh, market share leader. You award for Novell. It was like employee of like ever something like that. <laughs> That's a little overstatement, oh, okay. but it was, a, but it was, uh, it was, uh, it was a good time. And I learned a lot there just because we were in a high growth, uh, time for the business. And anytime businesses are growing at a rapid rate, you just got to figure things out mm-hmm. really, really quickly. So that was really the start for me, but I've been a CMO or head of marketing for, uh, 18 plus years, 20 years, maybe. Um, and f- I think the fortunate uh, thing for me is that I've been part of three really great growth stories uh, at an executive level. So uh, we lived in Seattle for a number of years, and I was the uh, CMO for a company called Cap Terrace that we grew to about $120 million. And then uh, spent my time as the CMO for Interactive Intelligence, which was based in Indianapolis. And uh, we grew that one to $325 million. And then I joined Workfront. Uh, I was CMO there. And during my time, we uh, went from about $60 million to about $160 million. So again, all nice growth stories. And I think what that created for me is a little bit of pattern recognition around uh, what it takes to, to grow a business. And we were talking about Mike, Mike Ward. Yeah. And he said some of the same things where he's like, I feel like I have the experience of knowing what to look, what to forecast for from that pattern recognition. But you taught him everything he knows. So <laughs> ask him that he will admit that. Yes. No, no, no. You know, Mike, uh, he, it's an interesting, he and I were an interesting match. We worked together for a number of years. Uh, he has data analytics skills that I just don't have. And so I would rely really heavily on him. And I think as you look at building a successful team, 
that's critically important is to recognize, to be uh, self-aware enough to know where you have holes and then go hire people that can fill those holes. Uh, so as you kind of think of marketing as art and science, Mike was the science guy for me. He was you know, somebody that I could rely on and then I could go off and, and do the things that I'm a little bit better at. Now, in terms of, I mean, I've heard a lot of leaders say that, you know, be self-aware, but in practice, what does that look like? I know for me, it's the more I read, the more concepts and ideas are like turning in my brain and it kind of helps me reflect. But how would you teach someone to like review their own process or person? Yeah, I think. I think part of it is a willingness, and this even sounds egotistical saying it, but to take your ego and, and set it aside, you have to be willing to essentially look in the mirror and go, you know, I'm not that good at whatever it is, mm-hmm. uh, because then you can fill in the gaps. It's the people, I think the people that struggle are the people that aren't self-aware. They think they're good at everything. And so they uh, they, they charge off into the night without knowing that this this isn't going to end well because you don't have that skill and you haven't hired people around you uh, that do have those skills. So I think to teach it, uh, you know, I, I just I think that self-reflection is a real healthy process to constantly be saying, "What am I good at? What what do I need to work on? And what things might I just say, you know, I'm not good at this, and I'm probably never going to be good at this. So I'm going to hire I'm going to hire around me for it." Mm-hmm. I, so I've interviewed a lot of CEOs, CMOs, VPs, kind of that they're running multi-million dollar companies and they are the most humble and unassuming individuals. Uh, you got the good group that, cause there's <laughs> plenty of them that, uh, I'm sure, that but I, I, maybe I have been lucky, yeah. but there is something I think that comes from knowing that like failure is part of the process right. and knowing that try not to take too many things personal or personally, or if you're going to take it personally, like feel the feelings, move on. <laughs> yeah. And know that there is like extreme ownership, but then there's also everyone is a part of the, the wins. I mean, I, f- I feel like this is, is part of what I'm seeing in terms of those patterns, but maybe you can tell me more cause you work with the C-suite. Yeah, no, I, I think you're right. And I think, you know, just like any other profession, those, uh, those C-level People come in all kinds of flavors, and there are some that are just, as you say, just tremendously humble, just building great businesses and and uh, doing a great job at it. I think there's probably uh, some level of ego or self-confidence that, that has to be in place because you have to take a lot of risks. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if you're leading a, a company, building a business, you can't really be timid because you just get run over. So if, to to take those risks, I think there has to be some level of self-confidence that we can do this. I know it looks bad or it looks undoable or it looks like it's going to be super challenging, but we're going to, we're going to go off and, and accomplish it. Um, so blend that with the recognition that, yeah, but it's not all me. It's uh, there's a team uh, that's been built around me or around the business. And I think that creates a nice balance for, for C-level execs. Yeah, I mean, if you think of like Elon Musk, mm. like if you took him out of context here or here, you could either love him or hate him. Yeah. But I mean, his milestones are like 10 years in the making. Right. It's like, we're going to take the next 10 years, which you have to have a lot of vision, a lot of tenacity and a lot of focus. 
Like you have to have enough of an ego to just and confidence to see it through. Agree to yeah. the end. But then there's also you know a part where you have to also be critical and scrutinizing of yourself and other people. Yep. Yeah, because certainly you know a lot of the CEOs that uh, that I think don't make it or that uh, the the end story isn't as positive as it could be are that they they don't recognize some of the some of the challenges or faults that that they may have because if you recognize them you can then compensate them for them if you don't recognize them then off you go and doesn't end well right now workfront i've just heard really great things about workfront as a culture it seems like everyone who works at workfront or worked at workfront they just are like the people like they take connections to people i mean obviously mike introducing me to you he he went on and on about how how great of an experience he had working with you and he considers you colleague and friend in that environment what would have taken you away from workfront to go to the next thing motivosity i mean it had to be something right it definitely was so i i you know again kind of 20 years as a as a cmo i in that self-reflective way started thinking about what what do i still want to do uh if if i go back through those three success stories. So Workfront was about 800 employees. Company before that was uh, about 2,000. Company before that was 700. And I thought, I've, I've, never, uh, I've never done the startup gig. I've never taken something that was much less formed, much more nascent in, in, uh, in the stage that it's at and built it. And I think there's something inside of almost all of us that has this desire to actually build something, to create something. And it's pretty different than, you know, growing something. So take Workfront as, as an example. So during my tenure, you know, we grew it well uh, from the point that I came to the point that I left. But a lot of work had already been done when I arrived. I mean, there, were, there was already a, a great... Uh, sales development team, as an example. PR was in place. We had analyst relations. So my job was then, well, how do, you, how, do, how do you scale that? How do you continue to grow that? It's very different than going to a startup where our management team is three people and we look at each other and go, I've never done this before. Uh-huh. And you have to come up with, so how would we do it? And uh, so my desire was to to have a shot at uh, at growing something from a uh, from a smaller stage, and that's what attracted me uh, to Motivosity. There is also a link. So the founder of Workfront is the founder of Motivosity. Okay. So uh, Scott Johnson uh, founded Workfront. is still the chairman of the board at Workfront. So he and I uh, knew each other for a number of years. And uh, I essentially went to him and said, Scott, is, are you ready for, for me? And he, he said, I'm, I'm not ready yet. I'm six months from being ready. And then we kind of worked through details and time moved forward. And he said, okay, I'm, I'm ready. And it's been, it's been great. That's so interesting. When I, I interviewed Karen Peterson of Brainstorm Now, yeah. and she said very similar things in that, you know, she was at Ancestry for 15 years. And then she took a sabbatical for one year. And in talking about what she was evaluating in terms of what she wanted for the next thing, because she could, she could kind of choose her adventure right. at that point. Yeah. Same as you. She was saying, I've never been in a situation where 
I could come in at that startup and ramp up mode. That scale up and leader up, you know, situation was already in place. So it was that same need to let's get into a situation where I have to figure things out from like ground floor and maybe with a skeleton crew and, you know, things that you would think, does that sound fun? Exactly <laughs> but... right. So it is a, it, there certainly are some trade-offs. So Workfront again, nice, mature company, interactive intelligence, nice, mature company. On day one, when I arrived at Motivocity, I, I walked in, there was one person in the, in the office, it was a sales guy. He was on the phone and he kind of pointed, I think you sit over there. I sat down. I, at lunch, I went and bought an extension cord so I could plug my computer in. <laughs> uh, I, I put my chair together uh, a week later. Mm-hmm. And so there are those days where you go, wait a second, wasn't it nice? You know, I had, I had an assistant and I had, you know, th- yeah. th- th- these people to, to do all these things. But it's, it's trade-offs. Uh, and the way I looked at it is I'd already done those other things. I want the thrill of coming up from, from the ground up on different ideas, implementing them, testing them, trying them, working on core messaging where nothing is established in the beginning and, and rolling that out. And so those trade-offs were worth it to me. Yeah, that's exciting, especially when you have the experience you have, because you can forecast a few more things than I've interviewed a lot of people. They were like, this was just an idea I had when I was in college. Right. And so I jumped into the deep end and it worked out. But you can see the surprise and alarm in their eyes as they're saying it worked out. Right. And there's plenty that say, and I wondered what I was thinking. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Now that I look back on that, but it was just that kind of the spirit of things. So I imagine that's part of what you feel too, is like the daily, like it's still an idea. It is. That needs to but, come to fruition. You know, and for me, and I think as people sort out their career and look at, you know, where they want to, where they want to move next. Uh, I was always very deliberate at looking at, well, here's what I've done. Here's what I liked. Here's what I disliked. Okay, what would my next move be? And I was very methodical and, and thoughtful about kind of trying to, to orchestrate that. Um, but for me, looking at a startup, uh, I also knew that for me to join a startup pre-product, before they had product in the market, I wouldn't add value. I, I mean, my my real value is once that product's out there, how do you market it? How do you promote it? How do you message it? Uh, so I also recognized even inside of a startup, what would the startup look like for me? And Motivocity was at a at a good stage. I mean, we have 150 customers now, about 30,000 users of the product, um, but still a lot of things to figure out. Still a lot of first thing that we do that is the First time we've ever done it. That's so exciting. Yeah. Let's talk about what Motivocity is. So I'll let you kind of give the the 30 second, like what it is as a platform, because yeah. I think it ties into a lot of other things we've talked about. And and, and that was a big attraction for me as well. So Motivocity, our, our mission is to help people be happier at work. How could it, like it doesn't get better than that. Yeah. To, to think that that's what what you're about when, when people spend, you know, 40 to 60 hours a week in a job to think that we could affect 
how happy they were in their job was pretty rewarding for me to, to think about. And the, the, it's a software application or software platform that allows uh, peer-to-peer recognition is the core function of it. So if you and I worked uh, together uh, in a company and you helped me or I saw you do something great, I can use small monetary recognition and then uh, a social feed to recognize you for doing that. Rest of the company sees it, tends to feed on each other. And next thing you know, you have this culture of people that celebrate success, compliment each other, mm-hmm. celebrate accomplishments. And it just, uh, the statistics as we've measured them relative to how engaged employees are, how satisfied they are, they are in their jobs, just goes through the roof. And, and I mean, that's at the crossroads of something that we've been talking about for a long time in terms of culture and employee engagement. And there's programs for it and there's, you know, methodologies and books written on it. But I think some people still are like, but how? It's hard. How do we improve? You're right. It is hard. It is the secret sauce to to a successful company. Mm -hmm. To come up with an innovative product, not easy, but it's doable. Everybody has ideas. Can you build a sales force that can then go sell it? Yeah. Can you market it and get people to pay attention to it? Yeah. But can you build a culture that, that can scale, that will go through walls to help this business succeed. Mm -hmm. That's really the secret sauce. I think if you, you know, if we lined up a hundred successful CEOs and asked them, you know, what was the thing that really helped your business succeed? They would say it it was the, that culture and all of those people that we hired that then succeeded that helped the business succeed. Mm-hmm. And so many people, you're right, it's hard. And so a lot of people kind of flounder with that and they'll have a great product idea and some uh, you know, hard to work with uh, leader and all of a sudden everybody's leaving the business and the thing fails. And you've, you guys have gotten to the heart of, like you've gotten that much more micro about it because I was reading a statistic recently and I don't remember the exact numbers, but it was one of the single most important things or what results into a breakdown in relationships is lack of validation, Mm. like human validation. Like we all still need it. It's that tribe mentality. Yeah. Like even if you're a loner, you still need to know, like have like a high five, you know, right. But you've gotten to the heart of that in like probably the most like natural and fluid way that you can do it in business. Yeah. So if you think of, you know, oftentimes we, we think, well, how much you pay me is going to be the thing that that satisfies me. Any idea where pay would be on the on the hierarchy as they do studies? What would you guess? I would. Well, I think the first response would be higher, but I would assume lower, just based on yeah, sixth. So okay. there's five things ahead of it. Uh, it's just it, it's one of those things that you know. Obviously, we need to be paid well, but it's not the thing that drives engagement and productivity. I'll tell you a quick story, a little shout out to my friend Davis Smith at Cotopaxi. Mm. Uh, So Davis, uh, Cotopaxi won the best place to work in Utah, number one spot, Deseret News. And it wasn't long after that, that one of his employees came to him and said, you know, I've been here a while. I'm just not, I'm not that happy. And Davis thought, no, 
didn't you read the the newspaper article? This is the best place to work. We're all happy. That's right. <laughs> uh, and what he uh, then concluded and recognized was this constant need that people have to feel appreciated. And as they looked at their statistics, recognition was always one of the things that uh, that that wasn't one of the stellar marks. Mm -hmm. uh, and so they implemented Motivosity and, uh, and his words were the scores have now skyrocketed and that was the only thing that they changed. And it's, it is, it's this innate desire that I have just put in all of these hours, done all of this work. Does anybody care? Does anybody appreciate it? Yeah. And as long as you can fuel the ability for people to recognize other people and express that appreciation, uh, employee engagement and, and productivity really, really jump. What's interesting though, is that employees may not recognize that that's what they're really wanting for themselves. They may not know to ask for that because we've done a number of employee surveys and never does it come with, I wish I had more appreciation. But if you dive deeper into what they do say you could almost always follow it back to appreciation validation yeah i think that's a good point and and it's also nobody wants to come across as needy, needy yeah. uh, and so nobody raises their hand and says nobody appreciates yeah. me but inside we we do it's a pretty rare individual that just doesn't care um most people are looking for uh and it doesn't even have to be big public praise just do I feel that my manager appreciates me, and do I feel that uh, you know that I have a place and the value uh, of the work that I'm doing matters to the business? If you get those couple of things working, it's just it's magic on on what happens to the business. Yeah, and I imagine that investment, like their their time, attention, investment, like personal. I want this company to succeed, not just so I have a job, but because I truly like am invested in this company and its culture. I imagine that is matched with the opportunities that they get for appreciation and validation. Yeah. Because if, if you think of business success in the realm of being on a winning sports team, there's nothing like winning. I mean, yeah. it's just fun to win. Uh, you know, they talk about uh, uh, when you, when you teach kids that it's, you know, it's about having fun. It is about having fun, but it's, you have more fun when you win. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I, I think that that's, uh, that certainly comes into play. People want to be bought into their company. They don't want just a job that they show up to, do their job, and go home. They want to feel a part of it. They want to feel appreciated, and they want to see the business succeed. Now, in terms of your style for hiring, for creating teams, what do you identify as in that initial stage? I'm sure you've hired hundreds of people. Yeah. And at this point, no, like questions that you could ask to get the information you need to evaluate that. Maybe talk a little bit of that process. Um, so I certainly look for a, for a cultural fit. And I think some people think that that's uh, an overused term. But uh, for somebody to come in and, and if I feel that uh, they don't have to be the same as everybody else, but I have to feel that they're going to be able to engage with those people and those people are going to engage well with them. Mm -hmm. uh, if I don't feel that, I'm, I'm probably going to shy away from hiring the individual. And then there's core competencies. Uh, you know, are they, do they know how to do the job that I'm trying to hire them to do? And then ambition, I think, goes a, a really long way. Do the, will they come and, and be satisfied in this job for the rest of their life? 
I'm probably not very interested. I'm looking for somebody who says, it's not going to be long. 18 months, I'm going to be in this job. I'm going to be knocking on your door asking for what else can I do? How can I grow? How can I develop? Uh, because I think that causes them to do such a better job in, in the position that I'm, that I'm hiring them for. Now, in the interview process, we all tend to want to put our best foot forward, right? Yeah. Is you as the one interviewing, I wonder how you maybe peel back that layer and maybe get to the heart of like, all right, show me, show me what you are on just a day-to-day. So, so my, my secret uh, for it is I ask uh, th- um, what I consider three-level deep questions. Uh, I, most people will prepare for an interview, and anybody can answer the first question. So if I say, um, you know, tell me uh, your approach to, uh, to developing a good website, right out of your mouth comes, you know, an answer Mm -hmm. that everybody can probably answer. But then I'll ask you um, a a follow-up question. So on that piece, how do you do that? And then I'll let you answer that. And then I'll drill again one more time. And uh, what I've found is by that third level, you really know, does the person really know this stuff? Or have they gone out and read something on a website or yeah, Googled it or read a book or something yeah. like that. Uh, so if you drill down those three levels, I, I also should say I've changed my interviewing style over the last probably 15 years. I, I, uh, I used to have people cry in interviews because I thought I am going to, I am going to just make sure that, uh, you know, it's getting real right now. Yeah, I would just get I would get harsh and and have them almost in in tears. And I've backed off considerably. And yeah. I think part of that is I think I've gotten a little bit more experience in in being able to uh, see through people just making stuff up. But I mean, in terms of a hot seat, you kind of need to see how people react when they're feeling some pressure. Yeah. I'm not proud of making them, making them cry, by the way. But uh. Yeah, I would be surprised that you made anyone cry. Okay, so you have done, I mean, you've authored, co-authored articles. Um, you speak on a number of things. That's everything from branding to leadership to work management. And those are things that you, I've heard from a number of people that you are really good at. Thanks. And you must enjoy. What does that do for you in terms of, you know, maybe learning your craft more, being able to articulate things to just personal development? Yeah. So one of the interesting points about both of those is if I ever get to talk to somebody who is considering a career in marketing or has started a career in marketing and they say, give me some career advice, I tell them, learn how to do two things learn how to write, and learn how to present. And the reason is most people don't know how to write and think they're good presenters and they're not. Uh, And so if you really want to kind of separate yourself and and stand above the crowd, those two things, uh, there's so much inside of, really inside of business, it goes well beyond marketing. If you can write, if you can craft your ideas, uh, if you can uh, develop things that communicate you know, the direction of the business, 
written form. And then if you can get up and when you're presenting to, uh, to a user conference or at a trade show or even trying to sell your idea in front of your peers on an executive staff, if you can do that in, a, in such a way that it's compelling and people are like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I like what I'm, what I'm hearing here, yeah. you're just going to be much more successful. And most people don't work very hard at either of those things. So I like it. Mine is mainly just to, to stay in practice. I think that uh, um, if you don't present very often, you, you get rusty and, and you start to lose an edge. I also find it very, very challenging to try and deliver a perfect presentation, which I've never once done, uh, but I love trying and thinking, wow, I could do this better, or I could, I could pause more. My idea that I conveyed here wasn't very clear, and trying to perfect that is, a, is, a, uh, is really motivating for me. I like doing it. And then on the writing side, I just I love to write. I write for a hobby. Uh, I, I just I like developing ideas and presenting them in such a way that that it strikes emotion for people. And mm-hmm. yeah, if I had more time, I'd write uh, some kind of fiction book. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh. Stay tuned. Yeah, I know you heard it here <laughs> first, and that's interesting because Seth. I mean, we talked about yeah. him earlier. When I had some one-on-one time with him, he said specifically, he's like, I would love to see you as a professional public speaker. And he went into, you know, it's about storytelling. It's about what you just said, captivating an audience in order to compel them. Yeah, so true. Yeah, you have them and they're inspired and they're for that moment. I mean, we all have the attention span of, I think, a goldfish. They were saying at this point, you have their interest in a way that is powerful for them. So it's like a give and take. Yeah. And, and I, you know, there's, there's certainly formal speaker training programs Mm -hmm. I've gone through. I've uh, put people through, I think the best way you have to identify your style, but then pick somebody who's super good at the style that you want to present at and just study the heck out of them. Uh, So I'll date myself, but Tom Peters wrote a book called in search of excellence and he's written other things. He's a, he, in in kind of the '90s was a was a very powerful business leader. Um, I loved his stage presentations, and I stole his jokes. I imitated his hand motions, but I studied him over and over and over again uh, because I thought his style was something that that I liked, and storytelling was a big part of what he did. Uh, and I think that's the best way to learn is. Go, go imitate somebody that's really, really good. No, that's so true. I mean, I watch a lot of, like Mel Robbins. I think she's one of the top book talents. Yeah. I don't think I could ever mimic her style because it's just, it's a totally different energy type, but it is captivating. Everything she says is right. just interesting. Yeah. And I mean, I wouldn't say that she's like so fluid. It's like she is intentionally like kind of on this cadence where you're like, I'm into it. <laughs> yeah, and it, it's interesting also as you as you think about presentation styles, um, you do have to pick your style. I mean, there's a there are people who come across as academics. There are people who are high energy. There are people who are really deep thinkers. Uh, so you got to pick yours and decide that's that's the one I'm I'm going to be. And then the nice thing is, you know, we live in this world where you have access to TED talks and all these other presentations just study these people and, and go, okay, I like how they did that. 
I'm going to go do that. Mm -hmm. That yeah. resonates. One of the, uh, just one more on, on presentation. Uh, so I got to interview Jim Lovell, uh, who was the commander of Apollo 13 on stage once. Oh my. And he, uh, I think when I interviewed him, he was 82 years old. He's still alive. Uh, but I was worried. I thought, man, this, this, how's this going to turn out? I got 2000 people who are getting ready to see this and how's this going to turn out? And he got on stage and just clicked into this mode. He was brilliant. And I asked him, I said, how many times have you given this presentation? And he said, ah, I counted not that long ago. He says, I think I've given it around 2000 times. And I, the message that I got out of that is you got to practice. I mean, you, you Seth, Godin is a perfect example. Mm -hmm. He knows how people are going to react, when they're going to laugh, when he needs to use voice inflection, when he needs to pause, and it just works. But you got to practice. Yeah, and that's interesting. You're practicing, but then when you're delivering it, as it, it's as if the first time yeah. you've ever had this conversation. <laughs> that's right. So it's this weird mix. Yeah. Like you know your stuff. You know kind of the sequencing of it, but then you make sure that you put that energy and magic into it as yep. if this is the first time, the only time Yeah, this is going down. Yeah, agree. You were part of something magical. That's right. Yeah, he did that so, so well. Yeah. Now, in terms of career advice, you mentioned a couple of things that you tell like people on your team, go you know, learn how to write, learn how to speak. But a millennial just starting out, what would you advise them to do in terms of either the hard skills or the soft skills? Learn how to write, learn how to present. Okay. Uh, I, I think... Uh, you know, if I look at the people that have successful careers, they plot out what that career looks like. Uh, I think a challenge, not to group them all together, but uh, a challenge that millennials probably face a little bit more than, than others is they get a little bit impatient. And so they think, well, I can do so much more than this. And so they job hop uh, quite a bit. And oftentimes they'll go to something, a, a different career that'll really mess up their resume. Mm -hmm. And that resume needs to look like a progressive document. It needs to look like, okay, so they determined they wanted to be a marketer here. They got this marketing job. They then became a director here. They then assumed digital marketing here, and now they're a CMO. That's the kind of path that, that will help people versus, wow, so you were a dog groomer, and then you were a marketer, and then and then you took this trip and you were a tour guide in Austria. Those are all great and all fun. And We and, could hang out. Yeah. <laughs> You're fun. But at the end of the day, are you going to build a resume that's going to get you where you want to get to mm -hmm. in your career? And, and so I think being very deliberate about that and not... Uh, not uh, making a decision for the wrong reason. So I had early in my career, uh, I for actually first company that I worked at, it was all done. I really determined that I needed a big name tech company on my resume. I interviewed with Novell and got a job offer. Resigned from my first job and, and they offered me 50% more money to stay. So we'll keep you, we'll give you a 50% raise. That looks very attractive, but I looked at my long-term resume and knew that that big name company was gonna get me further in the long run than 50% more money in my pocket. So I turned it down and I went to Novell and, and I think it did 
exactly what I was trying to have it do. That's so interesting. Like after grad school for me, I had a couple of offers and I went with the one that paid me half of what the offer. Good job. But in that situation, (laughs) I thought, okay, I'm young enough that compensation can't be my number one priority. It needs to be what I can accomplish in that role and how I can, you know, scale it to the next thing. Right. And I swear that has served me better than any other decision I've made. Yeah. Was being intentional. And I had a lot of people arguing, <laughs> like, why wouldn't you go with the one that made you more? Like there are bills to pay. And it was it was a gut check, but it was also this position to me is going to be bigger in what what follows. Yeah. I I think you're I think you look at it in the exact right way. I mean, there's just, there's so many things that come into play. I also think that the Trump card should be, do I like what I'm doing? Mm -hmm. And if you don't like what you're doing, go do something else. And I think that's universal. I think if you are toward the end of your career, middle of your career, straight out of school and you got your first job and you're just, it's not working out for you, you, you need to you need to go do something else because it's we spend a lot of time at work and it's just not worth it to do something that we're not passionate about, that we don't enjoy. And clearly there's there are bad days, right? There's days where that's we'd love to not. Yeah, yeah, I think some people are like, oh, I had a bad day. I must not love it. <laughs> that's right. I think I'll well, put it's still a job. <laughs> that's right. Right. It's, but overall, you kind of sum it together yes. and say, hey, over the last, you know, I think a good gut check is if I look back over the last four months, have I enjoyed what I'm doing? If the answer is yes, then keep doing it. Mm-hmm. Uh, if the answer is no and I don't see it getting any better, then go go look for something else. Yeah. I mean, Steve Jobs has said that in a commencement speech, I believe, where he said, if you have this many consecutive days of not enjoying what you're doing, it's time for you to to move on. And that's okay. And I've had, uh, I think twice in my career where I have left, uh, not even knowing what my, what my next step was, uh, but kind of trusting that, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to figure this out. But, uh, I'll uh, do better spending full time figuring it out than than staying where I'm at. Yeah, that's a good way to look yeah. at it. Yeah, everything's figure outable too. Now, my last question for you is about legacy. I ask everyone this question: What do you, Joe, hope to be remembered for? I, you know, I I think if you if you stack me up as a as a marketer, I'm I'm okay. I'm not. Like I don't think I'd be at the at the top of the list, uh, but I do believe that I take a very sincere and genuine interest in developing people. Uh, you know, we run uh, at Workfront. We ran an internship program where instead of a lot of times you'll bring in an intern and you'll say, "Okay, here's here's the task, do it. Your cheap labor, go get it done." We would bring ours in and we would give them. Uh, they would work in a department for three weeks at a time. And then they would write up a little summary and then we'd move them on to the next one. And it was all out of uh, interest in helping them figure out, okay, so now you've been in six different departments inside of marketing. Where do you want to go? What what do you want to do with your career? Uh, We hosted uh, um, CMO prep courses uh, because I had people that worked for me that said, 
my next job, I want to be a CMO. And so we would pick apart, well, so where are you lacking and what kind of training do you need? So kind of circling back to your question, I think uh, legacies, that, that's too big of a word. But, it, you know, if, if I had people look back on my career and say, well, here's what I remember about him. Uh, my desire would certainly be he was he was interested in me and helping me to succeed. And I and I really feel that uh, you know what goes around comes around. And if if you do those kinds of things, then you end up with a with a really nice career yourself. And I've heard it from several people that they would say what I remember about Joe oh, is nice. <laughs> he invested in me yeah. and that meant a ton. So thank you so much, Joe. Thank you. For, this was fun. Yeah, this, being part of this. I think your insights have been brilliant. I'm excited to share this. Thanks. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed this episode in the Mastermind interview series. If you did, don't forget to subscribe. You can also catch us at 97floor.com where we'll have show notes and links to resources along with the video interview for this episode. Or you can catch us on our YouTube channel where we have many more in-depth conversations and how-tos about all things digital marketing, business, culture, and thought leadership. Until next time.